So the scene changes this Sunday as we continue a journey through the gospel according to Luke. You know, we're in this gospel uh, and we're walking with Christ, this one, this son of God. And we're walking with him. Now, last week um, we were in, if you remember, we were in Jerusalem with a priest. But the scene changes, the scene changes this week. So if you have a Bible, we're going to pick up, we're just going to jump right in. Luke 1, Luke 1, we're going to pick up with verse 26, verse 26, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And immediately I think you'll notice the shift in the theme. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married, to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Well, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So immediately we're in just a very different moment in the story. We started the gospel in Jerusalem. That's the seat of power. And we were walking with a priest, this Zechariah. This is a man of status, a man who had social influence, a man who we saw was in the temple representing all of the people to God. This was a big moment in Jerusalem, a moment where someone who had influence is representing people of God. And here Gabriel comes to that man. Interesting, this whole thing shifts. And now we are going to go to Nazareth. This is this obscure city, this little town. We will call it a city. It's an obscure town. As many scholars note, it's in the northern province of Galilee and it's just a hill village. And here in this little hill village in the middle of nowhere, God is now going to come to this woman. This woman with no social significance. This one we call Mary. And God's going to say something very important to her through Gabriel. And I think what we're going to find is this is this all of this is unexpected. And so we notice right off the bat that this woman is a virgin. Twice. Twice up the front of the account. She is noted to be a virgin. So we want to hold that. And we notice right out of the gate that Gabriel says something to her. Now this thing he says to her 
has actually been mistranslated early early on in the church's history. Within the year 400 to 500, this gets mistranslated, and Roman Catholics pick it up for centuries, and it's taken on the form of a prayer. Take a look at what Gabriel said. Now, let's make sure we understand what this text says. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. Now, a more literal translation would be, O favored one. That's in the English Standard Version. The Lord is with you. Now, the mistranslation here is that this gets translated, Mary, full of grace. And it then takes the shape of a prayer sometime later. Here's the prayer. Maybe you know it. The Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace. This is getting picked up from this very passage. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. As one scholar notes, there's a problem here. It's a problem because we have the wrong view, not only of the translation, but exactly what Mary can do. Just going to note the way this was worded. This one scholar says this. The problem is that it treats Mary as the source of grace rather than the object of grace. People pray to Mary because they think she has grace to give, but the phrase full of grace is based on a Latin translation, that's the Vulgate, that is really a mistranslation. Mary was the recipient of God's grace, not a repository of grace. So here we just want to deal with a little theology. When when someone would pray the Hail Mary, this is a prayer based not just on bad theology, but really a bad translation. Mary doesn't have grace to give. God has the grace to give. And in this moment, God is giving grace to Mary. He is showing favor. She is not the one giving out favor. She is being shown favor. And so we just want to take note of that because this is such an important verse off of which so much has been based uh, for centuries. Okay, but that doesn't take away from all the things that Gabriel actually says here. So let's take a look. Now, we know that he says right out of the gate, you're going to conceive and you're going to have a child. That's no small thing to a virgin. Now, it must have been that when Mary heard that, she was anticipating that in that moment she was conceiving and having a child. But she was a virgin, so she's pledged to be married. The wedding day has not come, so in what way can she become pregnant without going and having her wedding day and then doing the things you do after you get married? How, do you, how is all this going to happen? Is it supposed to happen now? Is, it, is, is Joseph coming, you know, within hours and we're going to somehow cons- consummate our relationship? Like, where, how is this going to happen? It's not that she disbelieved. So she's just trying to figure out how is this going to work? And then Gabriel says... This. Just take another look. The Holy Spirit will come on you. And he also notes that that the the God Most High will overshadow you. This power will overshadow you. Now, the wording here is not insignificant. Here, Gabriel hyperlinks back to a very, very, very important moment in world history. Maybe you remember it. Not because you were there, but because you remember reading it. I might make a joke about James being there, but I won't do it because George is gone, so I'd have to say James, but we'll go on. Notice how Genesis 1 
1 through 3 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Gabriel here hyperlinks back to the same language. The Holy Spirit will overshadow, will cover Mary in the same way that the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep. In that very moment, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so what that tells us when we make the link and we tie the two together is the same creative power that brought the world into existence is about to move in the womb of this virgin. Same creative In the beginning, God created with His Word, Spirit hovering over the deep. And here in this moment, in the womb of a virgin, the power of God, the Spirit overshadowing her, covering her, in just a moment will create. This is really important because we're dealing with here the doctrine of the virgin birth. We're dealing with the doctrine of the virgin birth. This is a core teaching of Christianity. You can't be a Christian. That is, a historic, orthodox Christian. One who holds to the tenets of faith. Key doctrines. You can't be that and not hold to the virgin birth. It's key doctrine. Core doctrine. It makes its way into those key Core statements of faith that I think maybe most of us know or you've picked it up along the way. Do you remember the Nicene Creed? In the Nicene Creed, you read this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ and then you drop into the creed. For us and for salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. It's core. You don't get Christianity without the virgin birth. You want to know a good sign that you're becoming more liberal theologically? You start playing loose with the doctrine of the virgin birth. That will be a sign that you're, you're going wayward. And then you might remember the Apostles' Creed, right? The Apostles' Creed says it this way. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. A fundamental doctrine of the faith right here. Jesus was created by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. And this is an essential doctrine of the faith. This is just very important. Not just because it just Christians held to it as so fundamental, but also because you need it to get to a place where Jesus is the Savior of the world. You've got to have this doctrine. Here's what, how one scholar notes. I just like the way he explains it. Only the virgin birth preserves the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. His conception by the Spirit points to His deity. His birth from a woman points to His humanity. One person, two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. And because He was conceived by a unique creative act of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was not corrupted by the guilt of Adam. You've got to imagine how important this is. The only way that humans are going to be saved is if someone comes and takes on our humanity, but finally does it the right way. Like, finally is a perfect human. 
But you also need someone who can take on the full weight of the wrath of God in his body and pay for your sins. Like, you need both. You need a human and you need the power of God to take on the amount of wrath in order to pay for your sins because your sins and mine, those are, that's cosmic treason. So to, to pay for that, you need God himself. Somehow those got to work together. But you got a problem. You got a problem with, with every human. Every human comes from a man and a woman. And through Adam, through the man, comes the guilt of the original sin. Going all the way back to the beginning. Through Adam, Paul says in Romans 5, death came to all people through Adam. Well, here you now have a full human. Because this one is born of a woman. And if you're born of a woman, you're a human. But now you have also God himself coming through the woman. You now have two natures in one. Fully human, fully God in one person, Jesus Christ. This is the essential doctrine because you need it in order for the cross and the resurrection to matter. So you play loose with the virgin birth, you're playing loose with all kinds of things within Christianity. The reason Christmas is so important is because this doctrine is essential for your salvation and mine. Now the other thing going on here while we're, while we're, while we're dealing with some doctrine, I also want to note the Trinity. That, that doctrine, the Trinity, it's all over this passage. Nowhere in the Bible do, do we get a clear definition of the, of the Trinity. It's just not there. There's not a systematic definition of the Trinity. But if you begin to pull out all the passages where Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, where they are working together, you'll get a very clear picture of how God is working and operating. It's all over the place. It's right here in this very passage. Let me say it this way, with definition and then how it looks in the passage. God eternally exists as three persons. Each person fully God and yet as one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if you're trying to figure out how does that work out, like how does that actually exist, three in one, well, you figure out how our economy works, and then we'll talk about you figuring out the Trinity. There are a million things you and I can't figure out. They, doctors still don't know how to beat cancer. And yet we're going to get upset and not believe in the Trinity because we can't figure that out. You stop believing in cancer and I'll stop believing in the Trinity. There are some things we just are not going to grasp fully. And the Trinity is, is just one of many things that are, just, that are just beyond our understanding. That says more about God and me than it does to say it doesn't exist. So there's the doctrine, God three in one. It's a fundamental teaching of the Christian faith. You're not going to have Christianity without the Trinity. So what does it look like here in this passage? I, I, hopefully you've already seen it. I just love this. God the Father is sending God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. The Trinity is right here in Luke 1. It's just all over the place. So when you say, where's the Trinity in the Bible? Well, it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. That's one place the Trinity. That's one place where we find the Trinity. All right. So there's some doctrine. That's how important it is for us. Now, as the Son, as God the Son, we see from the words of Gabriel, He's going to fulfill something very important. Ugh. This one, this God the Son's coming into the world to fulfill some promises. 
he will sit on the throne of David. Remember? We'll just pick it up. It's not on a slide, but since I have an open Bible here, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. Gabriel here is picking up promises from the Old Testament. This is key. What God has promised, He is going to fulfill. I've got to show you one key passage, and then I want to bring in our Psalms study to bring in another. And then I think it's going to drive us to something that has to do with your life today. Okay, check it out. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the key moment in the Old Testament where God makes a promise that someone's coming through David's line to rule and make all things right. Here's what came through the prophet to David in this moment. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. They say, that's the Lord going to establish it. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. That promise is going to get fulfilled in Jesus. God's bringing someone into the world to reign forever and ever and make all things right for His glory. It's coming. And now Gabriel hyperlinks back to that promise. That promise, which I'm sure Mary read many times in synagogue, Saturday after Saturday, it's being fulfilled in this obscure hill village called Nazareth by a virgin. And if you remember in our study of the Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, you remember that the kings of the earth rage against the Lord. And God says, I'm going to deal with that. And he's going to deal with it in a particular way. There's a king coming. Now, I've taken the whole passage of Psalm 2, not to read the whole Psalm, but I've taken an excerpt. So you're going to see a bunch of ellipses, okay? But we're just taking the key parts of Psalm 2, but we'll read basically the whole thing. Here it is. You've got to imagine you're looking for a king. Psalm 2, verse 1, we'll start there. Why do the nations conspire? And the peoples, they plot in vain. Will the kings of the earth rise up? Now the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. This psalm sits as a key passage in the life of Israel because it's a promise God's sending a king. Someone's coming. The hero's on his way and he will wipe out every enemy. He will bring judgment to the enemy and salvation to his people. The king's coming. And in this moment, Gabriel's tapping into that promise. That king, the king that will bring judgment to the enemies and salvation to the people, it's this one who you will call Jesus. And Jesus, it means God of salvation. He's showing up and he's going to come through the womb of a virgin. And it's going to come by the creative power of the Spirit. This is a massive moment in the history of salvation. It affects you and me. But here's the thing. If you didn't know the end of the story, you wouldn't believe any of this. You wouldn't believe a word. You wouldn't think this was any of it possible. Can you imagine the heir to David's throne 
the heir to David's throne, well, that heir to the mighty throne of David, it's going to come through a teenage girl in a, in a small hill village that very few people have heard about. We wouldn't believe it. We wouldn't expect it. No one was expecting that. But God often is doing what we would never expect. And can you imagine that God, that God would be bringing salvation through the womb of a virgin? Is that even possible? No one's expecting that. Not a person's expecting for, for, for salvation through the coming king to come through a virgin. No one's expecting that. But God often does what we would never expect. And can you imagine that this one would be the Son of God? God doesn't come Himself. God, the Son. God doesn't come like this. He might show up, but He doesn't come like this. You mean God the Son is coming into the world? God, the, the Son of the God Most High? No one's expecting that. Maybe, maybe a really great king. Maybe a great human king, but no one's expecting this. But you know, God's often doing what we never expect. That's exactly what's happening here. Let me summarize it this way. Summarize it this way. This whole passage is about God doing what we would never expect. Mary indeed responds in faith, but you want to guess what? God's at the center of this whole story. He's doing what we don't expect. And he's doing what we think is impossible. So when I look at all the things happening in this passage, now you might expect you're supposed to believe this because you're a Christian. But when I step back at the logic of it all, oh, it makes sense when I believe in a God who can create out of nothing. But it also makes me stand back and, and, and what comes right to my mind are those words of the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans 11. I can't help but read this announcement of the coming king, this way, so unexpected, and not say this. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's what this is about. This is God doing what you wouldn't expect and what you think is impossible and all to His glory. So what in the world does this have to do with you and me? Well, i got one big application. One big application. Take a look. Take a look. We'll just put it right up here. God is still in the business of doing what we don't expect for His glory. Like that same God that was doing it so many years ago, He's doing it right now. And so we got to, we have to, we have to be, uh, we have to uh, really interrogate those things that we expect God will do. What I mean is, we need to consider what are the things that we do expect God to do because He's probably going to be doing it differently. And so I kind of want to really press on one expectation I think we have of God that is thoroughly unbiblical, but man, we carry it around all the time. We have this expectation. That the only way, no, no more slides, Carol, I, I, I'm, I'm, make, I'm, I'm making the runway. We have this expectation of God that He only gives us what we can handle. 
And the only way that we can bless others is if our cup is full. So you've got to take care of yourself so that you can be full, so that you can overflow and help others. And God will use us if our cup is full. So you need to make sure to take care of yourself. It comes in the form of memes all over the place on social media, right? Here's a few. Maybe you've seen them floating around on Facebook or somewhere else. You can't pour from an empty cup. Or this other one, you can't pour from an empty cup. Take care of yourself first. Or this bottom one left here. You can't pour from an empty cup. Take time to nurture and replenish your body, mind, and soul. I mean, doesn't that just sound good? Like, I'm ready to share that right now. I'm ready to hit share. Like, yes, just feels good. You can't pour from an empty cup, right? I mean, like, literally, you can't pour from an empty You can't pour what's not there. That's how we walk around. That's what we expect of God. God, I will fill up and then I know you'll use me to bless others. But the expectation is God will only use you if you're filled up. So you take time for you. Now, this is not a slam against taking time for you. There's a piece of this that's very important. But we've got to challenge this. This idea you can't pour from an empty cup. Just recently, uh, Tess came across this post, and it fits right here. She came across this image, and man, it made me like take a, it was like a double take. You can pour from an empty cup. You can pour from an empty cup. And immediately, I'm like, you can pour from an empty cup. You can't pour from an empty cup. I got to take care of me. Did I pour? Here's what that post, here's what that person went on to say mom who wrote this. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. I see a lot of self-care stuff in the mommy accounts I follow, and I've been on board with a lot of it. The phrase I see most often is, you can't pour from an empty cup. And when I saw that for the very first time, it hit me like my, it, it, it hit me like when my 20-month-old, uh, 20-month-old clocked me in the head with a plastic golf club. I thought, oh my gosh, yes, this You cannot pour from an empty cup. I need to rest and recharge, and then I can be there for my children. But my kids didn't get that memo. They couldn't care less about the volume of liquid in my cup. So with that, I can't pour from an empty cup mantra on repeat in my brain. I beg my husband for rest. I cry for peace and quiet. I ask God for a break, for a win, for something, anything. I can't pour from an empty cup. But my kids are still beating down the bathroom door. Demanding snacks, attention, to look at how high they can jump, to look at this new face they can make, to check out the floor's lava game they made out of pillows in the living room. They're running around yelling at, uh, at each other, at, at, yelling at each other with splitting decibels. They're bouncing balls, tackling their sister after being told a billion times not to. They're falling off of furniture at an alarming rate. They're eating things they shouldn't. They're making a zillion messes. My cup, cap, always feels empty. And yet I am somehow always pouring from it. And after a lot of protesting, God, how can I do this? How can I pour from an empty cup? I read it on the internet. It dawned on me that as a mom, that's like exactly what I'm called to do. It's in my life verses that I've always thought about, but it took motherhood for me to see them in this new light. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, this is that passage. But he said to me, this is 
God speaking to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the passage. She ends the post this way. I can pour from an empty cup. Really. When my cup is empty, that's the best place for me to be. When I am at my emptiest, I can then be filled to the brim with the strength that only comes from Christ. When I cannot rely on myself at all, I can rely on Him. And that is infinitely better. So you can pour from an empty cup. So when you feel worn out, you don't know how you're going to take the next step. You just are you're going crazy for any number of reasons. Work stinks. There's tension here. There's conflict here. There is unknowns over here. And you just feel drained. And you just need some me time. Paul would say that's where God needs you. Because he will be glorified and he will give you what you need. You're not kidding. Thank you, Jesus. You and I can pour from an empty cup. So here's where I want to summarize that. Here it is, right here. God still works in our lives in ways we would never expect. And it will turn out for our good to His glory. So be on the lookout for God to fill you up to bless others for His glory. And it's probably going to come in a way that you don't expect it. You're probably not going to be able to map this thing out. You're probably not going to be able to write out a really nice, neat self-care plan. God's probably going to fill you up in ways that you would never expect. Who would have thought in this hill village called Nazareth, the angel Gabriel would come and bring the announcement of salvation to his people? Who, who, who was expecting that? You want to talk about empty? Nazareth was an empty town. And here God overflows Nazareth to the brim. A virgin? She literally was empty. Nothing there. And then God fills her up. And what? He blessed, He blesses others for His glory. So I don't know what this looks like for you. But if I had to guess, all of us have something in our life that is emptying us. Draining us. And you are tired at some place in your life. Well, it's not about you, and it's not about me, it's about His glory, and because it's about Him, He'll do something unexpected. So just be on the lookout. Alright, I'm thinking of you, you people in this next step who hold meetings, have lots of meetings, and you have lots of people around your table, or you, you have a place where people will come talk with you. I'm just thinking, think about you for some reason with this next step. Because, man, this might be a cool conversation starter. Even if you put one of these at every seat, I don't know. Maybe that's too much. Here's the next step. Put an empty cup or glass near you at a meal each day, or maybe a meeting. And remember, God still moves in unexpected ways for our good and His glory. So literally, like just put an empty glass. Like put it somewhere where you're going to see it. 
Don't let anyone put water or Coke or anything else in it. This is, your, this is an empty glass, and it's meant to be empty because it's going to remind you to be on the lookout for something unexpected. And when God does it, you give Him glory. Oh, He'll do it. I don't know how He'll do it nor when He's going to do it. You might get impatient, but God will do it. So put an empty glass somewhere where you'll see it. A meal is a natural place. But maybe in your office, maybe around the meeting table, I don't know. But you just remember this. Our expectations that we have to be full for God to do something, well, that's just silly. God will do something unexpected for His glory, and you will be able to pour from an empty cup. That's a good lesson. A good lesson for any of us. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. These things don't come to us naturally. It is by grace through Your inspired Word we get these things. Thank You for Jesus. God the Son, who brings salvation into the world so unexpectedly. And yet, through you working in these empty places, you overflowed so that life came to the world. Do it for us, right where we are, like literally right where we live, in our homes, our workplaces. We need you to be filling us up and do it in ways so that we can bless others for your glory. We pray all of it in the name of Christ Jesus, and together we say, Amen.